Well, I wonder if you remember old Bilbo Baggins, the mild hobbit who becomes the reluctant companion of Gandalf the Grey on a dangerous expedition unlike anything he's ever experienced in his life in Tolkien's classic story, The Hobbit. So you see, hobbits are simple creatures, preferring the comforts of home and a cup of hot tea to the harsh, frightening realities that uh, may exist outside the Shire, the peaceful village where the hobbits live. But as it would happen, Bilbo has gained the favor of a powerful, mysterious wizard named Gandalf, who arrives unannounced at his home along with 12 uncivilized dwarves and invites Bilbo, insists really, uh, to come along on a journey to the Lonely Mountain. Talk of haunted forests, mysterious, uh, mysterious wooded elves, stolen treasure, and a fire-breathing dragon fill the evening with excitement and fill Bilbo's heart with fear. I won't spoil the story for you if you haven't had the opportunity to read it yourself, but it's not ruining anything to say uh, that Bilbo, in fact, ends up embarking upon this journey with Gandalf. And then years after this adventure, uh, he tells his nephew, Frodo, it's a dangerous business, Frodo, going out of your door. You step into the road, and if you don't keep your feet, there is no knowing where you might be swept off to. You know, I think following Jesus is supposed to be sort of like that. I think that the life of discipleship, the life of following Jesus is a life of adventure if we'll have it, if we'll allow him to lead us there. It can be frightening. It can lead us out of our comfort zones and into uncharted territory, but it promises the reward of the presence of Jesus along the way and the fulfillment of a life lived leaning in to its created purpose. Today, as we pick up our series in John's gospel called Life in His Name, we're going to meet four men who will embark upon this journey, this adventure of following Jesus, perhaps without knowing all of the dangers and delights that that would entail, but nevertheless confident that this pursuit is worth everything that they will have to set aside. So go ahead and turn in your Bible, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, to John chapter 1. If you're using the uh, story ESV Bible that's on the chairs, uh, that's going to be on page 735. If you're using a different Bible, I don't know what page it is for you, but uh, it is the fourth book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and we are picking up in chapter 1, verse 35. Now, before we read from this passage, let me remind you of what's come before. Uh, we had kind of a two-week uh, hiatus, a two-week break in the narrative for Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, and so it might seem disjointed to us, but uh, the 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 text we're going to read today, verses 35 through 51, are really take place on days three and four of a four-day sequence of events that began back in verse 19 of chapter 1. And so you may remember uh, that, we, that we read about the, the ministry and the testimony of John the Baptist, starting in verse, uh, uh, excuse me, it's, yeah, 19, verse 19 of chapter 1, where the Pharisees, these religious leaders, the, the elite so to speak, send a team of, of priests and temple leaders to John the Baptist to ask him who he is. Are you the Messiah? Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? And John the Baptist repeatedly refuses to accept any of these titles or to take any of that credit. 
Uh, and he says, no, I'm simply here to bear witness to the true light, uh, to the one who is coming, who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And so uh, that happened in, starting in verse 19. And then down in verse 29, it says, the next day, uh, Jesus, uh, John saw Jesus coming and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that happened on day two. We figure the, the religious leaders that had been interrogating him have left the scene by this point. But day two, John the Baptist sees Jesus and he proclaims about him, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world by becoming a sacrifice for sin uh, for all who would believe. So where we pick up today in verse 35, it'll, it begins with the words, the next day. So just so you know, we are on day three of this sequence of events regarding John the Baptist. So follow along with me. Uh, I will read aloud from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? I tell you the truth, you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So what does it mean to follow Jesus? Do we really have to leave everything behind for his sake? And what are we inviting others into when we ask them, to follow Jesus? What does discipleship really look like? I think we learned three things about discipleship in this text. Here's the first one. Following Jesus means reorienting our lives around him. 
reorienting our lives around him. Do you know what I mean by reorienting? Have you ever stood up too fast and suddenly the room seems to be spinning and everything that you're hearing seems warbled and sort of disjointed, almost dreamlike? So what do you do in that moment? You, you probably steady yourself, grab a chair or a wall or something, and just take a moment and let your brain sort of make sense of your surroundings, right? And let your brain sort of reorient itself to the room and to uh, your sense of gravity and balance. That, that's kind of what I mean here. Following Jesus means shaking off old perspectives, assumptions, values, and sort of letting your life recenter around the person of Jesus Christ, letting him determine our values and our perspectives and our assumptions. It's like giving our lives a new uh, balance, a new point of reference around which to balance themselves. So we're going to see uh, four men in this passage, but right here in this, these first few verses, we're going to learn specifically about two of them. Uh, so it tells us there in verse 37 um, that, that John the Baptist was standing with his disciples and he pointed out to Jesus, sorry, that was verse 35. He pointed to Jesus again, behold the Lamb of God, which is the very same thing that he had said before. And verse 37 says that two disciples, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Now it names one of them. It tells us that one of them was named Andrew. Okay, one of the disciples who heard uh, John's invitation was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. It does not name the other disciple but I, I think this was probably John, the author of this gospel. John never names himself. Uh, and when he does have to refer to himself, because the context of the story requires it, he calls himself the beloved disciple or the disciple that Jesus loved, which is kind of an interesting self-designation. But I think he's kind of trying to stay out of the, the way. I think he's kind of trying to stay out of the spotlight, not trying to write himself into the story, so to speak. And so, uh, so right here where he says, Andrew and another disciple, I think it's probably John himself who's writing this gospel. Uh, and, I, and I think that because in all of the other gospel accounts where Jesus calls his first disciples, John is always named along with Andrew and, uh, and Peter and James. So John has a brother, James, and Andrew and Simon Peter are brothers, and they're kind of in a fishing business together. So in the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where you read about the calling of the disciples, John is always listed right there along with them. And so I think when you have Andrew and another disciple, I think it's probably uh, John who's writing this account. But they take John the Baptist's suggestion seriously. John says, look, it's Jesus. It's the Lamb of God. And it says, they left and followed Jesus. Now, before you feel too sorry for John the Baptist, you know, losing all of his followers, losing his disciples, this is exactly what John the Baptist's ministry was supposed to be. He said back in verse seven and eight of John chapter one, I am not the light. I just came to bear witness about the light, the light, capital L, being Jesus, the son of God who would come into the world. And so the goal of John the Baptist's ministry is to point people to Jesus Christ. So when he says, look, it's the, it's the Lamb of God. He really is inviting uh, his disciples to follow Jesus. And so he points them out. And Andrew and John, in fact, um, take uh, that suggestion seriously. And they leave John the Baptist and turn to follow Jesus. So to say that they were disciples of John the Baptist probably means that they were a part of his ministry. So where John the Baptist is out baptizing and teaching, 
Andrew and John have probably been out there, maybe even day after day, hearing John's teaching, uh, hearing John proclaiming the coming kingdom of God and the, the baptism of repentance and all these kind of things. And so maybe even they're helping kind of spread the word and bring other disciples to John the Baptist. We're not sure, but we know that they have been followers of John the Baptist. But at this moment, when John the Baptist points them toward Jesus, they reorient their, uh, their life and they recenter their life around the person of Jesus Christ. You know, I wonder sometimes if there's maybe a voice in our ear that's a little louder than it ought to be. Maybe we're listening to uh, the wrong voices. Maybe we need to, to turn. Maybe there's, there's, there's something we've been following, something we've been listening to that we need to kind of uh, turn away from in order to make Jesus the center. Ask yourself, are my lifestyle, my time commitments, my financial investments driven more by the kingdom of Jesus or by some other lesser value. Maybe it's sports, maybe it's education, maybe it's entertainment, maybe it's success or status or some future security that you're banking on. Uh, what, have, what has been driving the decisions and values in your life? What has your life been oriented around? And, and could it be that Jesus is inviting you to, to turn and to, and to recenter your life around Jesus. And so we see Andrew and John turning from John the Baptist and embracing Jesus as their leader. We also learn in this passage about Simon, the brother of Andrew. It tells us down in verse uh, 42 that when he came to Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. I am going to call you Cephas, which is the Aramaic version of the word rock, which Peter is just the Greek version of the word rock. So he, this is kind of bold, right? Upon first meeting, I'm going to, I'm not going to call you Simon anymore. I'm going to call you rock. I'm going to call you Peter. And it's something like a nickname, I think. And, and throughout the gospels, if you, as you continue to read, Simon Peter is sometimes called by different, sometimes he's Simon, sometimes he's Peter, sometimes he's Simon Peter. And Jesus will actually refer to him by different names depending on the context. And if you look closely, I think you'll see that when he calls him Simon, it's because he's acting like old Simon. And when he calls him Peter, it's because he's kind of living into this new identity that Jesus is calling him to. Because here's the, there's a little bit of irony here. So he calls Simon Rock. And if you know anything about Simon from reading the Gospels, you know that Simon is not very rock-like. The guy is pretty uh, impulsive, impetuous, sporadic. He makes uh, promises that he can't follow through with. He says the first thing that comes to his mind, even if it doesn't make much sense, hasn't been well thought out, and he has to end up abandoning it. He says, I'm going to go with you even to the grave. I'm going to fight forever. And Jesus says, actually, you know, by the time the rooster crows tomorrow, you're going to deny three times that you even know me. And he's like, it ain't going to happen. And then, of course, we know how the story goes. It does, in fact, happen, and he... Uh, he, he follows that prophecy. So it's a little bit ironic that Jesus names him Peter, that Jesus gives him the nickname Rock. And I think the irony summarizes Jesus' calling for Simon. I think when Jesus gives Simon this new name, I think it ends up serving uh, as kind of a prophecy of who he would become. So it's a little bit like saying, I envision you becoming this rock, this steady place, this consistent, firm, trustworthy 
leader, and in fact, the true leader of the Christian movement after Jesus has ascended. And that's what Peter becomes. If you read the book of Acts, the first half or so is about Peter and his ministry. And when the Holy Spirit first comes in Acts chapter 2, it's Peter who stands up and boldly proclaims the gospel of Christ, uh, which is not very Simon-like. It's more rock-like. It's more Peter-like because he's living into this calling that Jesus has placed upon him by giving him this new name. And later, actually, Jesus will make it more explicit uh, this, this sort of hidden meaning within the name Peter. In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus is asking his disciples, who do people say that I am? And so they say, well, some people say you're Elijah or you're kind of a, you know, a manifestation of one of the old prophets, Jeremiah or whatever. And he says, who do you say that I am? Which, by the way, is the most important question you will ever have to answer. Who do you say that I am? am, that Jesus is? What do you say? What do you believe? What do you know about Jesus? That's the most important question any of us will answer. And when he asks this question, who do you say that I am? Peter declares, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father in heaven. And then he says, you are Peter. He reminds him of this nickname. You are rock, and on this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And so I think, again, this, this nickname that, that Jesus gives to Simon at first meeting, Jesus supernaturally knows Peter, or Simon, and what he's like, and that he's probably not all that rock-like, but he envisions him becoming that way, and he calls him into it. So when he gives him this new name, he is, he's inviting him. He's challenging him. He's saying, there's this new identity that I have for you to live into. I hope you know that Jesus has a calling for you. I hope you know that Jesus has a work for you to do in his kingdom. Maybe he's not giving you a new name to go by, but he has a purpose. He has a design for your life within the family of God, within the kingdom of God, to be on mission with him. And so uh, our, our hope is that each of us would be pursuing that, investigating that, and leaning in. God, what is your intended purpose for my life? Jesus has a calling for you. And then we find out uh, about Nathaniel a few verses later. Um, this is, so Jesus has found Philip, and then Philip goes and finds Nathaniel, apparently a friend of his, and he says to Nathaniel, we've found the Messiah, which is just what Andrew said to his brother Simon, right? We have found the Messiah of whom Moses and the prophets all wrote. By the way, Moses and the prophets or the law and the prophets is the way that the Jewish people would have summarized the entire Old Testament, law and prophets. So he says the Old Testament that we've been reading all these years that has been prophesying this coming Messiah, this coming king, this coming anointed one, we found him. He's from Nazareth. His name is Jesus. He's the son of that carpenter in Nazareth, Joseph, right? And Nathaniel goes, Pasha, right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so he is uh, confronted on that when he meets Jesus. And Jesus says, look, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And I think Jesus is kind of saying, Nathaniel's a guy who kind of tells it like it is, right? He speaks his mind. He says exactly what he's thinking. But he calls him away from it. When he says, this is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, 
Now, Nathaniel's a little taken aback by it. How do you know me? How do you know anything about me? And Jesus gives him this supernatural uh, knowledge of what he was doing when Philip found him. Because it says, before, he says, before Philip called you, I saw you sitting under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's convinced. You're the son of God. You're the king of Israel. That's all it took was sort of confronting his prejudice, his cynicism, his skepticism uh, right up front. And he does a 180 and turns away from his disdain for the town of Nazareth um, and, 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 and turns away from this skepticism and the cynicism in order to exalt and recognize Jesus as the son of God. So what does that mean for us? I, I, you know, I wonder if maybe there's a personal, private, secret prejudice that you've harbored in your heart, maybe toward, uh, toward people of a different race or ethnicity, maybe toward people of a different gender, a different socioeconomic class or status. Maybe there's a, a secret sort of grudge that we hold about certain kinds of people. And maybe it's time to follow the call of Jesus to lay it aside and let him shape your, your values and show you who to love and how to love them. And so he had that kind of a message for Nathaniel. I think you could have that message for us today. So following Jesus means, at one part, reorienting your life around him, letting go of whatever voice you were listening to before, uh, letting go of your, uh, your maybe even sinful prejudices and conceptions and skepticism, and reorienting your life around the person of Jesus. The second thing that we see about discipleship, about following Jesus, is that it means inviting others along, inviting others along. Now, I believe that one of the kindest things that we can do for another person is to invite them to share the journey of following Jesus with us. These four men have no way of knowing at this moment in time just what they're in for when they sign up uh, to follow Jesus. But an invitation to come and see is a consistent thread throughout these verses, throughout this story. So let's just take a look real quick at at how much an invitation to follow Jesus plays in these verses. So the first invitation is in verse 36, and it comes from John the Baptist, where he invites his followers to go and follow Jesus. Look, the Lamb of God, and if you remember the purpose of his ministry, to point others to him, He's not trying to gain his own disciples. He's trying to point them away to Jesus. So John is really inviting these disciples to go and to follow Jesus. So that's the first invitation. And then, so Andrew and John begin following him and, they, and Jesus sees them and he says, what are you, what are you seeking? Like, what are you after? I think Jesus probably knows, but he's kind of putting it to them. You've got to make it explicit. And they answer his question with another question. Well, where are you staying? Rabbi, they call him, which means teacher. Where, where are you staying today? And Jesus says, come and you'll see. So there's the second invitation from Jesus to Andrew and John. Come along and you'll find out where I'm staying, which is an invitation to come and just hang out with them. Come be where I am. Let's spend some time together. And so they do. They spend, it says, the, the day with him, it being the 10th hour, which is about 4 p.m. So the sun's going to go down soon. People are starting to look for shelter and that kind of thing. So wherever it is that Jesus is staying, they go along with him and spend probably uh, the, the evening and the night with him. And so then the next morning, after they have spent this time with Jesus, we see Andrew inviting his brother Simon. He goes to him in verse, uh, let's see, 39, verse 41. He found his own brother Simon and said, we have found him. And then verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. 
So Andrew actually takes Simon and goes with him to Jesus. A side note here about Andrew, Andrew doesn't have a really big part to play in the Gospels. Like he's not one of the main characters and we don't see him a whole lot. But every time he appears in the Gospel of John, he's bringing someone to Jesus. Right here, he's bringing his brother Simon along. Come, we found the Messiah. Come and see him. Uh, in chapter 6, verse 8, he's the one that finds the little boy with the loaves and fishes before Jesus is going to feed this giant crowd of 5,000 people. Andrew's the one that brings the boy to Jesus. I found this, this kid that has some loaves and fish that you could use. And then uh, in chapter uh, 12, uh, there are some Greeks that are seeking Jesus and are interested in knowing about him. And uh, Andrew is the one who brings them to Jesus. So Andrew has this pattern of bringing people to the Lord because that's the passion of his life. He's, he's followed Jesus. He's seeing Jesus. He's knowing Jesus. And he can't help but, but let that kind of explode into his life and, and overflow into to bringing others along. So we've got that invitation of Andrew to his brother Simon. Then we have a direct invitation from Jesus to Philip. So we don't know anything about where Philip comes from in this passage. It doesn't tell us. It just says in verse 43, the next day, uh, Jesus decided to go uh, to Galilee and he found Philip and said to him, follow me. So Jesus seeks out Philip, which really is kind of a reminder that Jesus is really always the one doing the seeking. He told us in Luke uh, 19, verse 10, in the story of Zacchaeus, the son of man has come to seek and to save the lost. So the one who's really doing the seeking and the choosing and the inviting is Jesus himself. And here we see directly, he finds Philip and invites him, come and follow me. And so Philip goes. Then we see Philip inviting Nathanael, right? Down in verse 46, Philip goes to Nathanael and says, we've found the one of whom the law and the prophets uh, testified, Jesus of Nazareth. And that's where Nathanael goes, uh, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And so Nathanael comes to see Jesus because Andrew says, well, come and see, come find out. So we have this, this thread of invitation. One person finds Jesus and brings along somebody that he knows. In some cases, Jesus directly just calls to somebody, to Philip, why don't you come and follow me? And then he goes to somebody he knows and says, hey, come, come and follow Jesus. And so one aspect of following Jesus involves bringing other people along. Let's find somebody uh, that we can share this journey with and invite them along. So we need to ask ourselves as followers of Jesus, how can we make bringing others to Jesus a regular part of our lives? Uh, who do we know? Who do you know that doesn't have a relationship with Jesus or is disconnected from the church that you could invite to come and see? Just, just come, investigate. Just come and see what this is all about. If you're a parent, invite your children to read the Bible with you. Begin a family tradition around you know, Bible reading and singing hymns when you're gathered together. It could be something simple around the dinner table or whatever. It doesn't have to be fancy, but just invite your kids. Hey, I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to pursue Jesus. Would you would you come along? So parents, invite your kids. If you're single, you know, ask a friend uh, to, to maybe read, read a Christian book with you. you know, um, maybe let's meet up for discussion. Let's read this book together and then we'll come together and kind of talk and just see what you think. So bring somebody along. Kids, think about a friend at school that you could uh, invite to come to church with you or that you could ask them, hey, have you ever thought about following Jesus before? And just see what kind of conversation might unfold. And so as Jesus followers, we need to be thinking and working actively in this direction. Who do we know that we could bring along 
to come and see, to come and investigate the person of the ministry of Jesus and what it could mean to them. And I've got to say this, you have to decide to do it. You have to plan for it. You have to pray for it because it's not going to happen by accident. We don't naturally engage with other people and naturally call to other people and, and, and make invitations. It's something that you have to do on purpose. So plan for it. Decide, I'm going to do this. Find somebody, make a name in your mind. I'm going to invite so-and-so to read the Bible with me or to come to church with me or just I'm just going to have a conversation. Just open the door a little bit and talk about spiritual things. Maybe that's a first step. Whatever it is, plan on it, pray for it, decide on it, and get out there. That's what he's calling us to do. Now, I think not everyone is going to be so quickly convinced as Nathaniel, who's confronted here when Jesus says, a disciple or an Israelite in whom is no deceit. I don't think everyone is going to be quite so quickly convinced. Some, some won't hear the story of Jesus and immediately go, wow, I need that in my life right now. Where do I sign up? Right? And some will never believe. Some will never respond to the invitation. Jesus himself experienced that kind of rejection. Remember back in chapter 1, uh, verse 11, it tells us that he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Jesus experienced that kind of rejection directly. So there's no guarantee that every time we ask somebody, hey, would you read the Bible with me? Hey, will you come to church with me? Hey, could I talk to you about the hope that I have in Jesus and invite you to consider that? There's no guarantee that they're going to say, yeah, I'm there, sign me up, I'm, I'm interested. But success is not the point. How many notches you can etch into your belt? Yeah, I had this many conversations. Yeah, I had that many people come over to read the Bible. Yeah, I've had this many people pray to receive Jesus. That is not the point. Faithfulness is what Jesus calls us to. He calls us to be a faithful witness to him. He calls us to make the invitation. I'm following Jesus. Do you want to come along? Do you want to be a part of that journey? The final thing we see about following Jesus in this text is that following Jesus leads us back to God. Following Jesus leads us to God. And this is why it matters in the first place. This is why it's worth pursuing at all because Jesus is the one that connects us, reconnects us with our creator. The one who made us, the one who loves us, the one who called us for himself, who we have consistently denied and turned away from and rejected. Jesus is the one who connects us to him. Look at verse 51. So Jesus has just called Nathaniel out and kind of said, I see you, I know you, I know who you are, I know your heart, I know what you were doing. Nathaniel goes, wow, now I believe. Now you're the son of God. Jesus says, because I said, I saw you under the fig tree, you believe, you're gonna see greater things than this, which is kind of like, you ain't seen nothing yet, right? You think that's impressive? You have no idea the kinds of things that you're going to be party to as you're following me. You're going to see walking on water, and you're going to see people raised from the dead, and you're going to see blind people healed, and you have no idea the kinds of things that you're about to see. But what he points to specifically when he says, you have no idea what you're going to see, that in verse 51, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That sounds a little weird. What angels descending and ascending and how do you go up and down from heaven on a person? What does any of that mean, right? So it sounds a little weird. So let's look at it piece by piece very quickly. So first of all, he calls himself the son of man, which is the first time in John that, uh, that Jesus uses that name for himself. But it is Jesus' favorite self-designation. Throughout all four gospels, he calls himself son of man about 80 times. 
it was basically a Hebrew idiom that just meant I or me. So the son of man is going to go to the grocery store. It's just like saying, I'm going to go to the grocery store. But Jesus infuses it with a deeper meaning based on uh, uh, the prophet Daniel. I should have had this marked in my Bible. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. There we go. So back in Daniel chapter 7, we have these words written about the Son of Man. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days, which is a title for God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So this is clearly a passage about a glorious, sovereign, authoritative king that's called a son of man. And so when Jesus calls himself the son of man, I think he's in taking this normal Hebrew phrase and kind of uh, infusing it with a deeper meaning, saying, I am the one that's anointed by God to, to reign and to rule and to have this everlasting dominion. So he says, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the son of man, which is clearly himself, on me. So what does that mean? Well, it calls us back to another passage in uh, the Old Testament, back in the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 28. If you'd like to go there, you can. Genesis chapter 28. This is where a guy named Jacob, who is another guy that God is going to change his name, he's going to change his name to Israel, which might sound familiar to you. Jacob is going to have 12 sons, and those sons will become tribes, clans, and those clans make up the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. And so Jacob is, is really uh, you know, one of the, the fathers of the nation of Israel. And in, Gen in Genesis 28, Jacob is running away from his family because he's just tricked his brother Esau out of a birthright, and he's just kind of this dirty guy. Jacob means deceiver. And that's just kind of the guy that he was, right? And so uh, he's tricked his brother. His brother wants to kill him. And so he's fleeing. He's taken off. He's in the desert. And he decides to camp out. And he finds a rock for a pillow, which sounds nice and cozy. And during the night, as he's sleeping on this rock, he has a dream. Uh, chapter 28, verse 12 of Genesis. He dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. So God is going to speak to Jacob in this dream and really just reaffirm the promise that this land is going to be yours and there's this nation that's going to come from you. Really the same promise he's made to Abraham and Isaac before. But the, in the dream, he sees this ladder going into heaven and angels going up and down from earth to heaven, which sounds a lot like what Jesus says. You're going to see angels of God descending and ascending on the Son of Man. So Jesus is basically saying that ladder that connects heaven to earth, that's me. I am the connection between earth and heaven. It sounds a little like what he's going to say in John 14, 6, when he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You want to get to God, you want to get to heaven, you want to get to glory, you've got to come through me. And so Jesus names himself as the connection between heaven and earth. Jacob's response to that dream, just a few verses later, 
Uh, he says, surely the Lord was in this place and I did not know it. And so he made an altar and he named the place Bethel, which means house of God. So when Jesus says the angels and are going to be ascending and descending on the Son of Man, on me. He's saying, I'm the connection to heaven. He's saying, I am the new Bethel. I'm the new house of God. The presence of God with his people is me. Jesus is the one uh, who, uh, who connects us back to God. So the point and the goal of following Jesus is we're getting back to God. We've been broken, we've been separated from him because of our sin, and Jesus offers us a way back. Our greatest need is to be reconnected with the God who created us, who loves us, who pursues us. All the while, we turn away, we put him off, we reason ourselves out of faith, and Jesus gives us a pathway back to God by providing this connection. So following Jesus... It includes reorienting your life, right? It includes recentering your life around Jesus. It includes inviting others along. I'm following Jesus. Will you come with me? And the whole point of it, the whole reason that it's worth it in the end is because Jesus is bringing us back to God. So for the purpose of our lives and for our lives to really have true meaning and hope, we need this relationship with God restored. And Jesus is the one who brings that about. Now, listen, these guys, these disciples that we just read about, they saw and heard crazy things. There's no way they could have foreseen the adventure that they signed on for that day. One author summarizes it this way. They heard the parables with their own two ears. They drank the water that Jesus turned into wine. They filleted the miraculous catch of fish. They were there when Jesus turned the temple upside down, when he walked on water, and when he ascended into heaven. So following Jesus for us might not be the safest path to take. Yielding your present and your future to him might mean you end up leaving the secure job to venture out and start your own business. It might mean you open lines of communication with family members that have been severed for decades. It might mean you begin serving dangerous people in a dangerous part of town because Jesus gives you a love and a compassion for people that you didn't have before. It might mean uprooting your family from Houston, Texas and starting something new in Baltimore. That's our story. You never know where faith in Jesus and this journey of following him might lead you, but in the end, it's worth it. And the, the disciples that we read about today, I think they would say the very same thing. And in fact, they end up giving their lives because they were so convinced that the Lord Jesus was true and that this journey uh, was what really mattered. So let's follow Jesus together and let's invite others to come along.